So we really, really need to talk about free speech. But before we talk about free speech, we need to talk about why free speech is so fundamentally under attack at the moment. And that is because of exploitation. Exploitation. Now, exploitation can be direct or indirect. It can be using force or fraud to deliberately take resources from people. It can be a predatory state, it can be predatory taxation, or it can be destroying people's self-esteem to the point where they feel dependent upon your approval as a boss, as a manager, as a capitalist, and um, rendering them unemployable due to destroyed personalities. There is a lot of different kinds of exploitation in the world. We're going to focus on those forms of exploitation that directly contribute to the undermining of the greatest gift the world has to offer a society, the only way a society can stay free, free speech. Now, free speech at the moment is under attack by the left. There wasn't this, let's destroy statues, let's hit people with bike locks, let's deplatform people. That's a term I'm going to use a bit. Deplatforming is when you shut down someone's platform for speaking, of course, with the internet, it's places like YouTube or Facebook or other places like that. You shut down someone's platform for making an argument rather than rebutting the argument. Or you try to dock someone. Or you try to find their employer and tell terrible tales about them to their employer. And you attempt to shut down their capacity to have a platform upon which to speak or from which to speak rather than rebutting their arguments. This happens, of course, across the web. It also happens in speeches, you know, when you, you blow whistles, when you pull fire alarms, uh, when you scream so people can't hear, uh, when you make all of these horrible interruptions and, and um, obfuscations of someone's words rather than rebutting their argument. This kind of stuff was not happening when Obama was uh, in power. Uh, people weren't being deplatformed who were on the left. There weren't statues being torn down. There wasn't all of this stuff going on. So right now, the threat to free speech is coming from the left. In history, at times, it's come from the right. Right now, the pendulum is on the left. And this is a real shame. It's a real shame, particularly with the right as it stands right now. Because looking at the left and looking at the right, there's so much that is agreed upon. There's so much that is agreed upon. The left have this caricature of the right, that the right is somehow defending or likes the system that is, and the system that is, is has something to do with the free market, which it doesn't. There's so much that the left and the right agree on. It is really tragic. It is what has been described in academia. The fights are so vicious because the stakes are, are so small, or what Freud referred to as the narcissism of small differences. So, yeah. The right, they hate the banks too. <laughs> they hate the Federal Reserve. They hate government control of fiat currency by an ostensibly private corporation called the Federal Reserve, which has about as much to do with the federal government as Federal Express. The right hates terrible education. They hate vote buying. They hate national debts and deficits. They hate the disintegration of neighborhoods, of the family, of local support systems. There's so much that the left and the right agree on. But the left has been fed this caricature of the right. And the right is, is somehow conservatism means to defend the current system. No, no, the current, by, by definition, to, to, conservatism means looking deep into history for what you want to keep. 
if it's something new, you can't conserve it according to conservatism because it's new. So they're looking further back in time to a more free society, to a society where more progress was being made in the healing of social ills. The, the progress that has been made uh, has been um, recently flat or, or negative in terms of closing any kind of um, gap uh, between the rich and the poor, helping the poor out of the poverty, helping blacks out of poverty, helping Hispanics out of poverty. All of that progress, which was occurring in the post-Second World War period, has been arrested or has declined. So there's so much that the left and the right, and by the right, I don't mean the Republican Party. You know, I mean, Trump was, erect, uh, Trump was elected to take on the Republican Party as much as he was to take on whatever other group uh, he talked about. So this is the great tragedy, that there's so much that the left and the right agree on that it takes a lot of propaganda to get the left to hate the right. Now, one of the things that's hold to the left is that exploitation is a class thing. You can't exploit if you're poor. You can't exploit. You have to be rich to exploit. Like you have to have power to be racist. Like it's a way of excluding and excusing any negative behavior from the poor. But exploitation in reality is not a class thing. It's not a class thing. There are a lot of people who exploit the workers. And workers are not just the poor. There are workers who are productive at every economic level. It's not just the poor. Lots of people exploit those who produce more than they consume within society. There are certainly those in the upper classes who exploit the workers. You got the banksters, the military industrial complex, politicians, media moguls, and so on. But there's more than that. There is exploitation that comes from the poor. The idea that the light and dark sides of human nature, the angels and the devils on our shoulder, the idea that evil is only confined to a particular group of people and everyone else is an angel is deranged. You understand. I mean, the, the divide, the dividing line between good and evil in the human heart goes all the way across cultures and genders and races and classes and nations and religions. You name it. We all have the capacity. Milgram experiments showed this very clearly. You know, the Milgram experiments, uh, you know, where there was uh, a guy in a lab coat who told people to shock someone into learning something by applying more and more electrical shocks. It was all sort of made up, but they didn't know that. The participants, vast majority of people, will turn it up to, to a sign clearly labeled, danger can kill someone, if they're told. So it is not a class thing. Exploitation can occur among the rich, among the middle class, and among the poor. So sure, lots of rich people are exploiters of the workers, and some poor people are exploiters of the workers as well. People who are on a welfare, people who are working for the government, doing rather useless things or interfering with the productivity of others. Government teachers, single, some single moms who are heavily dependent on uh, welfare. Women as a whole, according to some studies, take out far more in benefits than they will ever pay in taxes. That's exploiting, you understand? When you're taking out more than you're giving and you're threatening people for non-compliance to deliver you the goods, well, you're exploiting. And those who use the power of the state to take money from hardworking people and put it in their own pockets, they're exploiting. And that is not just a rich thing. That goes all the way. We're all tempted by free stuff, you understand? Our desire for free stuff is what makes us so great and so terrible. Because we want free stuff, we don't want to walk across town to have a conversation, so we'll work really hard to have phones and cell phones and 
Skype and whatever, right? So we, we, want, we don't want to get up and change the channel. So we'll have remote control. We're lazy. So we work very hard. So we get to work less. And our laziness is the root of our technological genius as a species. But it is also the root of exploitation. We want stuff for nothing. We want stuff for nothing. And, 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 and the group that as young leftists in particular, as young leftists in particular, the group that you've had most exposure to in terms of exploitation are sometimes single moms and teachers, particularly female teachers, since most teachers are female these days, particularly for the young, and academics. Academics are extraordinarily exploitive of the working classes. We'll get to that. We'll get back to that. So the question you always have to ask when there's a big new movement is why now? Civil War statues stood for over 100 years. Free speech was not under this kind of assault under Obama or, or Bush or Clinton. People on the right used to go and give speeches. No riots. So why now? Why now? Why, why is this happening now? Well, it's happening now. And you may not be aware of why the heat is being turned up under you and why you are being filled with anger and hatred, right? I mean, it's really, really important. There are cowards out there who don't want to go and get their free stuff themselves. They don't want to expose themselves for the parasites that they are. So what they do is they find impressionable young men and women, particularly men, and they fill them full of hatred against those who the parasites feel may interfere with their free stuff. And then they send them out there as shock troops to make sure that free stuff keeps coming. So there's a reason why things have been turned up right now. Two things have happened. Number one, governments around the world, particularly in the United States, they're running out of money. The governments are running out of money. And we have a free market guy who's not particularly beholden to special interests in the White House. And that is a very, very powerful thing that has happened. Government is running out of money. And there's a guy who likes the free market who's in the White House, who's not bought off by special interest groups. Now, the goal, given how many people are dependent upon the state, given how many unfunded liabilities, like well north of $150 trillion, unfunded liabilities of the U.S., given how many people are dependent on the state, you know, half of American households rely on the state for significant portions, if not all of their income. So many people are dependent on the state, it can't possibly continue. You understand? Social security, old age pensions, largely collected by women, require such a massive bailout that it makes the bank bailout of 2007-2008 look like something you'll find in the return slot of a vending machine. It can't possibly continue, you understand? And there's a panic about the not able to continueness of this god-awful system that we've all inherited from the, thanks boomers, from our elders. System can't continue. The system cannot continue. So there's going to be a panic for the remaining resources. You know, everyone can get along when y'all have enough food for the winter, right? You're, you're in some northern climate, middle ages. Everyone gets along when there's enough food for the winter. When it's January and you can't get any food until April, but you only have enough food until February, that's when. Conflict escalates. So the only solution to all of this dependence is to allow the free market 
to operate, to create jobs, to create opportunities, to raise wages to the point where we can begin to detach people from their dependence on the state and move them back from being exploiters and parasites into being productive. And listen, there are lots of people who really, really, really want that. There are lots of people who are desperate to leave their dependence upon the state, to go out into the market and to be productive human citizens. We love free stuff, like people love winning the lottery and then their lives turn to crap. We love free stuff. Oh, I got a lot of unemployment insurance. I got welfare. I got SNAP. I got what? Disability benefits. And then there are some people who are legitimately disabled and all, but a lot of them aren't. But every time jobs are advertised, you get 100 jobs advertised, like 3,000 people show up. They desperately want to leave dependence upon the state to the hypersleep, self-resentment stasis of state dependence. They know. They know the ship's going down. They want to get on the lifeboat of the free market. That's not wildly complicated. They're desperate to do it. So the only chance to have a soft turnaround of this system that can't possibly continue is to free up the market, to free up the barriers to job creation so that people can be weaned off state dependence and move into the free market. Now, there are some people who desperately want to do that, and there are some people for reasons of corruption, self-hatred, incompetence, or massive, you know, they got eight kids, so from eight different guys or whatever, they're terrified of that. They're terrified of going from dependence to independence. They're terrified of going from parasitism to productivity. But, you know, as good old K. Marx rapped at one point, he who does not toil shall not eat. I don't believe that, but you understand that was one of the essences of of Marxism. So there are people who are desperate to get out of dependence and into the free market, into productivity, and they voted for Trump. A lot of the sort of flyover country, the Pennsylvania, the Rust Belt states and so on, were tired of being dependent on the state and desperately thirsty to gain the self-respect of productive action. We want to be lazy. We work very hard to be lazy. And when we're lazy... We decay. So this is one of the great paradoxes of life. That's the only chance we have. The money's going to run out unless we can transition people away from dependence on the state and into productivity. Now, where is the major resistance coming from? From moving from dependence to independence? Well, arguably, I don't know if this is for sure. It's just a thought I've had. Let me know what you think. Well, the Baxters, you know, they're smart people. They are well-educated, high IQ, real-world work experience. They've got resources and savings. So I think they can transition relatively well, relatively well. You know, if you add end fiat currency and the Fed, all the good necessary stuff that needs for a real free market. If you don't have a free market in money, you don't have a free market in anything. Everything else is just nonsense, right? It's like saying, oh, there was a free market under Stalin because there was a black market. It's like, nope, <laughs> no, there wasn't. So if you end the Fed or you end the military-industrial complex or diminish imperialism, which is another thing that the left and the right really agree on, is, what, 750-plus military bases overseas, endless foreign wars, endless foreign aid, endless interference, endless control or attempted control over other countries' politics and culture and economy. The left and the right both hate that. Trump was elected to get out of globalism, to get out of foreign wars, to get out of... The 100,000 bombs that 
Obama dropped largely on Muslim countries over his eight-year reign. Come on, we agree so much. So those at the top of the economic ladder can transition relatively well, not perfectly, not necessarily totally easily. But there is... And, and the poor, the poor who are relatively independent in terms of, you know, they don't have a bunch of kids and so on, they can transition relatively well. And, and people have written about this, and you probably know some people like this who are like, you know, I spent two years on welfare, I got so depressed, and then I got a job, I'm like, now I'm happy to get out of bed in the morning. Yeah, we all understand. We all know that we consume, we must consume in order to survive. And if we consume without producing, then somebody else has to be forced to produce for us. And that is a basic reality. And we, we know this. We all, this is a conscience. We all know this deep down. That if you're not earning your daily bread, somebody else has to. Now, some of this can be fine. Like if you're home, uh, you, you've got kids and, and you're home and you're raising those kids, you're producing wonderful things, producing human beings, producing the next generation, producing um, the continuation of the species, the whole point of dragging ourselves out of the primordial ooze for the last couple of billion years. So, but somebody has to give you the resources, both for you and your kids. Kids are a liability. When the welfare state turns them into an asset, well, everything goes completely haywire. So sometimes you are consuming without producing in the moment, and your husband and will provide for you the resources for you to be home and raise the kids. That's wonderful. But if you're a single mom on welfare, then you are consuming and your children are consuming and other people have to be forced to give you money, pay your taxes for the welfare state, or go to jail. Gun in the room. Once there's a gun in the room, ethics goes out the window, other than to condemn the fact that there's a gun in the room. So, single moms, not all, not all, there are some hardworking single moms who make it, but nonetheless, their kids suffer without access to a father or father figure. But single moms, you know, if you're on the left and you're young and you have this tendency towards aggression, towards violence, towards screaming down, shutting down other people's free speech, Maybe it's your mom. Now, this is something that is hard for a lot of people to grasp. Let me, let me explain something to you, because I hate the fact that men throughout history, but it seems more and more now, men are uh, expendable tools for others to get resources. I mean, we've, men, we've been expendable tools in war. The ruling elites have thrown us into the fires of war like a spiteful child with a hated lead soldier. We have melted and burned and died by the hundreds of millions. And I hate this disposability of men. And here's a way to understand this if you've been raised in this kind of environment. So let's say you have a car. Do you care about your car as an end in itself, or do you care about your car as a means to an end? In other words, do you care about your car sitting in the driveway looking pretty, or do you care about your car as a way of getting you somewhere? Do you care about your car more, or do you care about your destination more? Now, other than a few Seinfeld, Leno, car freaks, most of us care about the destination more than the car. Car stops working, you junk it, you get another car. If you can't get a car, man, I didn't have a grow up with a car, I didn't get a car until I was in my 30s. If you don't have a car or can't get a car, you take a bus, you bike, you walk, you hitchhike, whatever. Because the goal is your destination. The transportation is a means to an end. You understand? 
So, pro tip from evolutionary biology. Moms, mothers, care more about resources than men, than husbands, than fathers, or, in your case, than sons. This is not to say there's anything wrong with this. This is not to say there's anything bad about this. It's just evolutionary biology. If a mother with dependent children can choose, if she has to choose between a man or husband who has no resources and can't get any, or no husband and lots of resources, evolutionarily speaking, she will choose the second option. The good intentions of her husband will not put food in her children's mouths. Do you understand? Throughout our evolution, women need resources, and men are the mechanism by which women give resources. Right? Women have an access of fertility, men have an access of resources, and they trade. There's nothing wrong with it. And there are some women who love men for themselves, like some men love cars just for themselves. But for the most part, it's resource. It's about resources. If a woman with children, if a mom, has the choice between risky male resources or guaranteed government resources, she will generally choose the latter just about every time. Because children need resources every single day. Like, you can tighten your belt, you can go without a meal or two, you can whatever, right? But you can't do that to your kids. They need it. They need the food. They need the resources. And it's heartbreaking if you don't have them. Which is why when women get the vote, they tend to vote for big government programs, massive redistribution uh, of resources, welfare state, unemployment insurance, particularly for their husbands. Uh, they vote for old age pensions. They all lots of things, right? Women will choose resources, moms will choose resources over freedom for the most part because that gives them resources. Men will choose freedom over free stuff in general because in freedom, men can go out and win lots of resources and thus get the best women, right? In the free market, well, ambitious, hardworking, intelligent men will generally choose the free market. And interestingly enough, women with husbands will choose the free market because their husbands are working out in the free market. So women who are married to men generally vote for freedom and women who are unmarried generally vote for free stuff. You can, it's two, you get freedom or you can get free stuff. You, they're opposites, right? So men are how moms get resources for their kids. So women who can't attract or keep a quality resource intense man, they vote for resources from the state. What that means is they will now raise sons who must defend the state because the state is the source of their resources. So if you're on the left, particularly the radical left, my guess is you grew up without a father. So did I. Now, like me, see, if you, if you grew up without a father, if you have a single mom, not a widow. Widow is the father died, or a single mom is by choice. Right? Could either didn't get married, didn't stay with the man, or got divorced. Some degree of choice. If you grew up in a single mom household, you also didn't just see your own father, you just didn't see fathers at all. Because when you grew up in a single mom household, you kind of fall down. You know, it's like throwing a rock into the Mariana Trench, the ocean, right? It goes down. You end up down at the bottom level, the rent control, the, the ghettos, the trashy neighborhoods, the dirty neighborhoods, the gross neighborhoods. 
I mean, I remember we moved into a new place once and we were supposed to go over. The neighbors were like, hey, come on over, get to know us, right? It turns out that we couldn't because the man discharged a gun into his wall. And uh, so the, uh, the dinner party was off. Not very Downton Abbey, but certainly a slice of history. That was uh, instructive to me. You fall down into this underworld. So around me, there really weren't many fathers at all. Now, I at least grew up like I went to boarding school where there were, it was all male. I know, we had a female music teacher. And I was segregated, we were segregated by gender. So at least I had some male role models when I was younger. But for the most part these days, you grew up without a father, you grew up without even seeing fathers. And there are very few male teachers around. Like in some districts, only 25% of the schools have no primary school male teachers at all. Nine in 10 primary school teachers, teachers of kids are, are female. And if you have a female teacher, for the most part, statistically, you have to suffer under anti-male bias. It's very, the studies are legion and clear. Female teachers mark down boys and mark up girls. Female in-group preference is a very powerful thing. Boy, you wouldn't want any male in-group preference now because apparently that's just being a fascist Nazi skinhead. (laughs) But women can have all the in-group preference they want and it's, I don't know, sugar and spice and all things nice. No in-group preference, puppy dog tails. So you've suffered under this anti-male bias from your female teachers in general. And it's both boys and girls do better under male teachers. They respond better. They work harder. And little boys, they're fully aware of this anti-male bias, the sneer, the curl of the lip, the constant irritation at their activity and curiosity and restlessness. Let's drug them rather than fix the system. This is how. And of course, anti-male bias is generally overlooked. If it was anti-black bias or anti-female bias, everyone would go nuts. But because it's anti-male bias, anti-boy bias from female teachers. See? I told you you were disposable. You understand? Stop being disposable. So when you grow up without a father figure, you also have less testosterone. You, you know, we all understand. You say, oh, well, women need mentors. Women need examples. You know, we need to show all the women who were involved in computing so women know that they can, girls know they can get into computing. And it's funny because we say that women, girls, need all of these mentors and these examples. But apparently boys don't need fathers or male teachers at all. See? Disposable. You're the livestock for the vain and the greedy. So you grow up without a father as a boy. A lot of times you, you don't have an identity, so you live for approval. You live for approval. You, you, you're desperate for approval because you grew up with conditional love. Now, sometimes if you grow up without an identity, without a masculine identity, and you live for largely female approval, you will beat and maim, attack, scream down, just to get approval, but you don't have to. Here's how it's supposed to work. If you give babies unconditional love, which is what babies deserve, they then grow into children you can truly love. They grow into brave, courageous, intelligent, interesting, curious, empathetic, wonderful children that you can actually love. Unconditional love is a seed. It grows the crop of conditional love. You can't eat the seed, usually. You can't eat the crop. If you didn't get unconditional love as a child, as a toddler, as a baby, you grow up with a desperate need for approval. And when you have a desperate need for approval, 
you're very easy to exploit. I hate to put it so bluntly, but you need to hear it. When you don't get loved properly as a child, you grow up with a desperate need for approval. Survival is approval, and approval is survival. Which means you have a big giant button that people can push to get you to do what they want. You can be exploited very deeply, very powerfully if you grow up without love, respect. Two groups that often are not seen when it comes to exploitation. We talked about the single moms. Let's talk about the academics. This, be, this may be your first male influence if you've sailed through the estrogen surf of government education when you're younger. Academics prey upon the working class. They prey upon the poor. They get $150,000, $175,000 a year for working a couple of hours a week. They get months and months off in the summer. They get sabbaticals. They get TAs to do the grunt work. They really are mandarins and potentates and fat-bellied, monocle-wearing, cliched monopoly capitalist exploiters. You understand? They prey on the poor. And they're Marxists, a lot of them. Now, academics want to keep their parasitical payments. They don't want their gig to be disturbed by any intrusion of the free market. Higher education is not a free market. Not a free market at all. So they want to keep this, it's called rent-seeking, these unjust benefits, these benefits they get from exploiting and using state power to protect their monopoly on higher education. So of course they don't want free speech on campus. You understand? Because the right really dislikes the student loan bubble. Well over a trillion dollars just in the United States. Young people, 17 years old, 18 years old, signing multi-year $30,000, $50,000, $75,000 commitments. No sense of what the market needs. No connection between supply and demand with education and the market. Young people who've received very little economic, professional, or value-based or free market education from their crappy government schools sign these documents and are told, you got to go to college, you got to go to college, you got to go to college. Why? Third of millionaires never went to college. That's exploitation. Sign this document, kid, so I can get my sabbatical in Jamaica. I can go to a conference in Hawaii. You sign this document, kid. Get in debt for $50,000, $75,000, kid. Because we academics need our feeding trough and our control. That is exploitation, my friends. Because here's the thing. You know, or you should know, that at least in the States, other places do, you can't ever get out of these student loans. You can't declare bankruptcy and get rid of them. Why? Why? You can declare bankruptcy if you're a rich capitalist. Can't declare bankruptcy if you signed a document at the age of 17 or 18. And you found out you were lied to about the value of your degree. And you found out that there was no correlation between what you were urged to take and what the market actually wants. You find out you can't even get your life started. Because you're stuck working low-rent jobs to pay off just the interest on your bullshit loan for a bullshit degree that made you worse off. 
than if you'd never taken it. So the academics, the tenured exploiters of the working classes, they don't want free speech on the campus. They don't want, because they know the people coming from what's called the right these days, they're the real whistleblowers. They're blowing the whistle on this bullshit. They know that the people on the right see them for what they are. They don't want them on campus. Because the right are the new whistleblowers. They are the punks. They are the counterculture. And I don't mean the Republican Party. Trust me. I really, really don't. Paul Ryan. It's quite a long way from objectivism, Count Chocula. They don't want the right having free speech on campus. Because the right is talking about free market, self-ownership, responsibility, working the parasites in the ivory towers. They don't want any of that. But you see, they can't legally stop these speeches. They try. Oh, we'll need $15,000 security fee. It's like, what? (laughs) You get hundreds of millions of dollars of federal money and you can't afford it. See, they don't want this free speech on the campus because it goes counter to. It's not even Marxist ideology. They just want their free stuff. They want their tenure. They want their income. They want their petty little kingdoms of propaganda. So they can't stop free speech directly in America. First Amendment and a lot of other places too. They don't want to be obvious. So what do they do? You see, they use you. They exploit you. You understand? They use you. They fill you full of hatred towards the enemies of their own economic interests. If the free market reigns, academia collapses. Hell, if students can just discharge their debts... Through bankruptcy, the academic house of cards, the bubble collapses. They don't want to get real jobs. They don't want to actually have to get up and contribute value to customers. No, they want the government to pay for people and lie to people. To bring them into the classroom, to keep them in their cheap-ass exploited gravy. So what do they do? They fill you full of hatred at the right. They're Nazis. They're evil, they're racist, they're terrible people. Vicious, horrible, fascists. And that way, you go out and you defend the exploiters. You understand? You're being used to protect the unjustly acquired wealth and privilege and status of others. You hated as did all just people. You hated the bailout. Taxpayers should not be forced to pay for the bad decisions of the banksters. I agree. Taxpayers are being used to protect the wealth of the powerful. They're being exploited. But that's happening to you as well. You are being used to protect the economic interests of the academic parasites. I'm not saying everyone in academia is a parasite. I understand, right? Now, not all academics are like that. Academics these days are terrible scam. It's a predation on the young, the poor, the impressionable, the untutored. Now, if you are some Federal Reserve... Economist, you can probably transition to the free market. Most academics, 
They wouldn't last five minutes on the free market. It's all kinds of Big Bang Theory-esque. I did this years ago. Years ago. Put out the challenge to free market academics. Join me in the free market, I said. You understand the value and virtue of the free market? Join me. It's wonderful out here. It's great. It's exciting. You have real impact. I've reached tens of millions of people. 15 plus million views and downloads every single month. Thanks, everyone, by the way. It's great stuff. Really, really appreciate it. This is how you change the world. The free market academics say, in the free market is quality and voluntarism and virtue. Now, I can understand way back in the day, it was tough to make a gig, although you could write books and so on. Now on the internet, fire up a webcam. 50 bucks, internet access, you're home free, baby. I said, join me. You believe in the free market? You want the free market? I'm showing you it can work and better than academia. They won't. They won't. (laughs) And they have the least excuse because they believe in the free market. So academia even corrupts irreversibly people who believe in the free market. Now, a lot of you believe, oddly enough, in the power of the state. They believe in government education. And this is a weird thing. Because if government education is good, then you should be able to easily debate idiots like fascists and Nazis, right? You should be easily able to dismantle them, to humiliate them, to drive them back with the power of your rhetoric and the force of your language. If government education is so good, why, according to the left, are so many people just evil, deplorable, racist, Nazis, fascists, right? Why? Government's responsible for the moral raising of these children, They spend more time in government schools than they do with their parents or parent. If government education is so good, why are there so many evil, nasty people around? Government raised them. Government have no responsibility for raising all these Nazis. But you need to understand your role in what's going on. You got, let's just take a leftist Example, you got some capitalist, he's exploiting his workers, he's grinding them down, he's brutalizing them, he's, it's in the past, let's say, he couldn't get internet, no internet, no information, right? And then some guy comes along and he's like, yeah, I don't think this is a really good system, I don't think we're really doing well here, I don't think we're being treated right here. Well, what's the evil capitalist going to do? But he's going to get his shop troops to crush the flow of information, to destroy the reputation of the troublesome worker who's maybe even thinking, of calling a strike and starting up another company to compete with this evil capitalist. Gets his shock troops, he crushes the emerging freedom movement among the workers. He lies, he manipulates, he bullies, and he de-platforms. You understand? I told you we were going to get back to de-platforming. That's when you use horrible rhetorical devices, lies, insinuations, slander, threats, in order to either stop someone from speaking or remove their capacity to broadcast. You know, like um, like what's happening on YouTube, right? They're ghettoizing particular videos. It's not going to work, of course, because there's already huge lists of videos that have been deplatformed or ghettoized, and they're just getting way more views than they did before. So that's not going to work. It's going to have to escalate, you understand? 
Because what, what should happen is people who have really bad ideas should be free to publish those bad ideas and then they should be taken down by really smart, expert and competent debaters. That's what you want to do. A little bit less with the bike locks, a little bit more with studying rhetoric. Debate. How to make an argument. I've got a book. Imminent. Oh, it's on the verge. The Art of the Argument. I hope you'll check it out. But this deplatforming is a confession of impotence. It's a confession that you're being used. It's a confession of such emergency that people need resources. They feel those resources are being threatened. They've got no time for debate. No time for debate at all. They've got to shut down anyone who's standing between them and their free stuff. Shut it down. Deplatform. Of course it's cheating. You know, if you want to get into a boxing ring, get into a boxing ring. But don't poison your opponent the day before. That's bullshit. Yeah, it's cheating. It's dishonest. It's cowardly. It's a confession of incompetence. But who wants you to act in this way? It's not you. It's not you. Who's filled you full of so much hatred? Who's filled you so much rage? It's not you. You're young men, young women. The world's your oyster. You've got the internet. You've got opportunity. You've got an amazing world that you can go out and conquer. Why are you out there screaming at people and hitting people and macing people and pepper spraying people and risking arrest and risking doxing and risking a criminal record and destroying your... Why? You're not yourselves. You understand? You're possessed by the pretend helpless economic self-interest of other people, of exploiters. You are the shock troops shutting down the truth the arguments, the debate. Nobody has a monopoly on truth. We get to truth collectively, like science. You get to truth through a conversation, through testing, through arguments, through debates. We are all involved in the pursuit of truth. Nobody has a monopoly. Not you, not me, nobody has a monopoly. I'm corrected all the time, and thankfully so. You get a polish by being sanded, you understand. So when you want to deplatform people, you have to understand that you're being possessed. You're being used by evil to shut people up. Evil exploiters and parasites want you to shut down a debate that will threaten their direct and immediate economic interests. It is the end of an era in the West, in the world. For about 150 years, well, for over a 1,000 years, people in the West fought to shrink the size and power of the state. To make the state something small, something purely reactive, something that was supposed to protect you from violence and fraud, not something that was supposed to make you better. Right? The pursuit of happiness, not happiness. For the last 150 years, that process has been reversed. And it's now reaching its end point. The idea that the government is going to make everyone better, that the government just needs to borrow and bribe and fund and arm and bomb and destroy and and, and, uh, propagandize. Everyone will be great. Give a small group of people all the power in the known universe to print money, to force people, to control people, to regulate people, to indoctrinate people, 
Give a small group of people all the power in the universe to do that. Next up, paradise. <clears throat> Hasn't worked. It's done the opposite of working. We're worse off now than when we started. When the end of an era is upon us, essential conversations need to be had. What the hell went wrong? What were the motives behind the people who led us this way? What were the flaws in their arguments, the people who led us this way? You know, no, you see me, I get articles or arguments, I disagree with them, I go through them line by line, and I rebut them. Because I don't like to be used by bad people, you understand? I don't like to be a hand puppet of satanic fingernails. No, thank you. Self-ownership, self-actualization, independence, conscience. That's my gig, baby. You don't get to use me. And I encourage you to start thinking that way. Stop, stop being used. Engage. Stop hitting people. Start learning how to reason, how to rebut. We are at the end of an era. Essential conversations need to be had. Stop being used, my friends. Stop begging for an approval that will never come. The only approval that you really need, the only approval that will satisfy you, is your own conscience. I invite you to free yourself from the chains of others, to set yourself up as your own judge, to seek the approval of your own conscience, and stop being used. <laughs>